excited all day for 10 p.m. Eastern. When we will see two queens face off in the Australian Open, we don't even have to stay up until 3 a.m. And I know I'm not alone. People have been talking about tonight's Serena Williams-Naomi Osaka matchup all day. But guess what? That's not the only reason to be excited today. Oh, no, no. Today is a great day. It's Sarah Spain. It's Jason Fitz. First of all, that's good enough. You're listening to our show here on ESPN (laughs) Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Your day already got better. Uh, But in addition to the tennis, which we'll get right back to, it is also the day when we could see spring ahead. It may be almost 20 inches of snow outside, but we know the sun is coming because Jason Fitz, pitchers and catchers reported today. That's right. Grab your glove. Don't go outside, though, because, again, 20 inches of snow. But imagine going outside and having a catch Pitchers and catchers reported for my beloved and completely stripped down to the studs cubbies today. And even though I have a very bad feeling about this season, I'm still enthusiastic about spring being on the way because baseball is here. Did you pick a team yet? This is a no, we're going to do that this year. (laughs) Bachelor style. This is a sneaky part of Sarah Spain that I don't, you know, I didn't know when we started working together that you are, you're a baseball head. Like you are a fanatic for this sport. You love it. And it, it surprises me every year because here I am sitting like, I mean, it is dark in Connecticut. It's dark and snowy. Everything just feels like we are stuck in the middle of winter's coming Game of Thrones full on. It's happening right now. And but you're right. Then you say pitchers and catchers are reporting. And I'm like, wait, there's a like forget. Yeah. Puxatani Phil. Like, I don't care about that. <laughs> Give me like some opportunity to be involved with something that says, hey, the goodness is coming. And pitchers and catchers give us that sort of hope that springs around the corner. I'm sad for you because you don't have a team to assign to the excitement and enthusiasm. Even though my team is probably going to be trash, it's still exciting to have players and individuals to root for. I have a suggestion for you that I think we should do over the course of this season. We don't need to rush it before the season begins. I don't think you have time. All year, like just free stuff. Yes, yeah, it's part of it. It's part of it. So I did. I did college football bachelorette in order to pick a college football team. I went to Cornell University. We're not even allowed in the playoffs, even if our teams were good enough. So I had to pick another team to root for to get me really invested in, in you know, the pageantry of Saturdays. It led me to Michigan. So maybe it's not the best system, but either way, mm-hmm. it was fun. I think we should do Major League Baseball Bachelor. And we should whore you out to the teams. See which ones will send you swag, which is probably who you're going to pick. But see no, what would course. be a fit. We could have fans tell us what fan base you best fit with. We could have people pitch it to you. You can maybe eventually, if COVID ever leaves, you can go on some tail dating events oh, where you go to the games and like see who you feel good with. We could do like live fits together. Yeah. Like we could go hang out in a at stadium. Wrigley, like- at Fenway, what, go up to Seattle, check out a Mariners game. Don't pick them. They never win. Even worse than the Cubs. Uh, yeah, that'll be fun. Let's do it. Okay, so um, a couple of quick questions as we get ready for Major League Baseball. I will only ask you, Nashville has a minor league team that is now affiliated with the Brewers. How do we feel about No, the that? Brewers are trash. Uh, we okay, will never perfect. be Brewers the, fans around here. Yeah, that, see, I, the minute I heard that, I realized that was out. Right. And uh, Hartford has a beautiful the uh, beautiful goats. facility. I mean, yeah. the Yard Goats have a absolutely gorgeous stadium, and I love going to Yard Goats games. So maybe – you know, they've also got great swag. So maybe they're the affiliate of, of the Rockies. So Okay, the Yard Goats are up there with the Trash Pandas as my, some of my favorite <laughs> minor league teams. I love Fair. the Trash Pandas. Um, yeah, I mean, if you want to choose based on a affiliate, that's not a bad 
Listen, we're going to workshop this. We'll come back okay, around. We'll we're not going to do this on air. People could give a suggestion at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz, at Spain and Fitz. If you have some suggestions for the parameters by which we formulate Major League Baseball Bachelor, uh, throw them our way. But not only do we have pitchers and catchers reporting today, guess what else is today? Today is Michael Jordan's birthday, Fitz. Oh, listen to this. Doesn't this make you feel good inside? Like warm, like warm, like maybe a little aroused. Um, I'm sorry, uh, happy, just uh, maybe like uh, just sexually excited at all? No? Um, I, you know what, Sarah, because, yeah. because we have such a core friendship, I can tell you <laughs> finally, I always like Scottie Pippen better. Wow! I mean, I, I love... I was always the other guy guy, I though. Like, Scott- I like... That makes I liked, sense because you like, are like absolutely... Slash better than Axel. Like yeah. I always went for the other guy, you know, like I, right. Richie Sambora no, more than John Bon I think it's good bon to know your limitations. Yeah, and if fair. you're not like, a star, maybe it's best two. that you recognize that. I mean, you're clearly the Scottie Pippen of this show, and that is not an insult. Great player, but I mean, some of us are more drawn to the Michael Jordans of the world is all I'm saying. Uh, well, I like Stacey Ogman better than Larry Johnson when I was a kid. There too. You like, go. This is a thing for wow, me, but I will say when I, met, when I met Scottie Pippen, I didn't really meet him. Scotty won't even remember it. But at one of those ESPN all, like, everybody had to be there meetings, I stood in a little circle of people, and Scotty was in the circle, which counts as a meeting. I didn't say a word because the whole time I was just thinking, it's Scotty Pippen. So, yeah, yeah, and he the- looks like he could still not only play basketball but absolutely whoop your butt. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. But happy birthday, Mike. Still. Happy birthday, Mike. Can you believe that Mike is 58 years old? Mm. That's upsetting mm. to me. <laughs> He's almost very... as old as some of the scotch he was drinking in that uh, in no the doubt. documentary. No doubt. Uh, <laughs> by the way, just donated $10 million to open two more health clinics in North Carolina. Uh, so shouts to the GOAT. Uh, one of those birthdays every year, February 17th rolls around. Every year I post a photo. Happy birthday, Bay. Happy birthday. Hope you have a great one. Uh, I hope you're wearing a quadruple-breasted suit somehow that got invented so solely so you could wear it. And uh, you said shout-out to the GOAT. So we're talking about LeBron or? Wow. I just had, I'm just in a trolling mood, guys. Hey, I was just going to say, like, I'm just starting the show with great excitement and enthusiasm. <laughs> and so far, you're not meeting me where I am, friend. Let's see if you'll meet me here. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Back to the tennis. Okay. So Serena, Naomi, we talked about this yesterday a little bit, but the numbers are kind of fascinating. Obviously, Serena, the greatest of all time, speaking of goats. uh, But in their matchups, Osaka 2-1 against her. So won two of their three matchups. And Osaka 10-0 in quarterfinals beyond of majors. If she gets to the quarterfinals, she does not lose after that. It's gone on to win every major. So who you got? Uh, I've got... I've got Osaka. I, I want wow. like this is this is that moment where you know you and I talk a lot about. Sometimes you have to separate your fan hat from your logical. I'm a radio hat, and my my logical my, my fan hat wants Serena here, right? Like that that just makes the most sense. I think also it's a great story later on for the legacy. Uh, the right. fact that we get to see these two incredible incredible women uh, play, and they're both doing so well right now. Like it's not this isn't one of those moments where you're getting. Somebody that's tremendously, I know Serena's not who she once was because she's been so dominant, but she is still dominant. So you get this great opportunity to see two people really go at it when it's fun to watch. But it's hard for me to pick against Naomi Osaka at this point. It just feels like the way that she, the trajectory she's on, the two and one record means something. Like some of the awe effect of going up against Serena dies down every time you have the opportunity to go up against her and have success. So yeah, I'm, I'm going Osaka. 
Yeah, uh, it's tough because we were asked this to, uh, to consider this on the Around the Horn call yesterday. Who should be more intimidated of the other? And I started out well, like, oh, of course, Osaka, right? I mean, this is the GOAT we're talking about. She has the added impetus of trying to get to that record tying number 24. She's not injured. She's playing great. She's figuring out, you know, how to push deeper um, in volley. She's pr- figuring out how to, you know, take a tiny bit off her serve when necessary while still dominating in that capacity across uh, the tournament. She's doing all the right things. She's got that savvy veteran approach. And then I was like, but wait, Naomi's like on her way up still, right? She's not battling age. She's not battling any injury. She's, you know, doing what Serena was doing back then. So um, it's a tough, it's a tough one. I'm reserving my pick for later in the show. You'll have to stick around to hear it. By the way, day ones, we just talked about pitchers and catchers reporting. I know you're not as much of a baseball guy, so you might be more into the NFL Hall of Fame game as sort of the decide that like oh my god football season is here so i want to ask you at spain and fitz at sarah spain at jason fitz which sports day one ish is the best feeling when it hits i'm going to put up those two but we'll put up other two and you can let us know if there's something we missed coming up one team appears to be gaining a little steam in the deshaun watson conversation more on that coming up next espn radio you're listening to the spain and fitz podcast all know it it's the season of quarterback chaos and there's going to be movement all over the place but with that comes rumors and speculation and reports and sometimes it makes sense on one end but not both we got to look at both sides of the equation and yet again we find ourselves having to deal with that when it comes to Deshaun Watson at Spain and Fitz on ESPN radio the ESPN app series XM channel 80 we're presented by Progressive Insurance Sarah Spain Jason Fitz all of our guests tonight join us on the Goodyear hotline and Sarah I think this is going to be a weekly tradition now until Deshaun Watson (laughs) has a new home. We'll be speculating about where he may end up. But there are reports now that Charlotte is all in on doing whatever it takes to acquire Deshaun Watson. Whatever it takes could include as much as Christian McCaffrey and three first-round picks. So they're trying to send a bounty to Houston to pry away the type of quarterback that will make their franchise relevant for at least a dozen years if they can get everything right. I understand the logic on Charlotte's side and for, for Carolina, for the Panthers to look at it and say, hey, we want this guy. Makes total sense. I just don't know why that bounty would be the thing that makes Houston say, yep, we're good. We're going to make a move now. Yeah, anytime anyone's questioning the bounty going the direction of the Texans for Watson, I have to ask, have they seen Watson play? Like, I'm not moved (laughs) by the amount of players that would be heading this way in this particular hypothetical, particularly because we've said since this demand out of the Texans hit that this was going to be a Herschel Walker-esque deal, right? The biggest we've seen in a long time. You do not have franchise quarterbacks, top five in the league at the age of 25, future ahead of them quarterbacks available in the NFL. It's just not a thing. So the expectation is that, yeah, you're going to give up a whole lot and maybe step back in terms of the depth you have around Deshaun, at least for a year until you can go out in free agency and fill a lot of those holes of what you're giving away. To your point, for the Texans, Christian McCaffrey is an absolutely huge get. This is an MVP player who operates almost like a a hybrid, right, of a running back and a receiver. He is a great pass-catching running back, and he does a ton for the offense. But who's throwing him those passes? (laughs) There's a lot that needs to be figured out in order for this deal, even with first-round picks and McCaffrey, to make sense. Um, And the question is, I guess, just how much are the Texans confident in their ability to make good in the draft? Because we've seen other teams like the Rams say, 
listen, we're cool giving away all our picks. We're going to get everything through free agency and proven talent. We're not going to play the lottery. And the expectation for the Texans would be not only will be stripped down to the studs in terms of the players we've traded away or released recently, but now we will have to rebuild all based on our ability to scout in the probably most difficult draft of all time this season after an incredibly strange college year. You make such a great point, Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, when you talk about the strangeness of this year's draft and not just of the weirdness of the season, but the number of opt-out players that we have no idea how good they are, what they've been doing for the last year, and how that translates to any level of success on the field. The other part of it is success on the field has to be part of whatever conversation we have about Christian McCaffrey. I personally don't love the concept of devaluing the running back position, and I believe that Christian McCaffrey is one of the best players in the NFL. While all of that can be true, it can also be true that in his rookie year, they won 11 games. Since then, they haven't had a winning season, 7-9, and nine, and then back-to-back 5-11 and 11 seasons. Now, I understand that this was a year of transition for Carolina, but you can't look at back-to-back 5-11 and 11 seasons and Christian McCaffrey out for a lot of this year, but you can't look at what they've done and say, okay, we've seen so much out of Christian that we know that suddenly just having him on a team makes our team a playoff contender. You, you, you're not going to be able to – the best running back in the league cannot ever replace the value of a top-five quarterback in the NFL. Well, and worth noting, look at look at the record of the team Deshaun Watson was on this year. I mean, you could yeah. do that with almost any talent, and that's the problem with even the team that will be receiving Deshaun Watson. They need to be in a very unique position of having enough talent to give some away and still compete. It's going to be tough wherever he ends up because they're going to be stripped a bit. In fact, John McClain um, uh, had reported that the Texans are going to want not just a couple ones and a couple twos and, and whatever, but probably young defensive starters. So maybe if Tepper throws in a Jeremy Chin or a Derek Brown or one of those young uh, defensive guys, that's going to be something that moves the needle as well, right? Because um, what we've seen is you can have that standout offensive player you can have that tremendous quarterback or, in the case of the Panthers, running back, and you're going to need to put a whole lot around him to actually have it result in, in Ws. And that's what's going to be so fascinating about whatever the end deal is for these teams. Yeah, in my mind, the only deal that will ever send Houston or send uh, Deshaun Watson away from Houston is a deal that makes everybody that sees it say, they gave up what? Christian McCaffrey <laughs> right. and three first-round right. picks doesn't do that, you know? It's going to take that level of history. We'll talk about that trade forever. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. That's not the only quarterback piece of news that we have now. As Ben Roethlisberger, we're trying to figure out what his future looks like, obviously, across the landscape uh, for the Steelers. And there's this moment in my mind, Sarah, where I feel like I've got it set where the Steelers just take care of their guys and Ben takes care of the Steelers and if everybody works it out and there's this big kumbaya session and everybody's happy. That doesn't feel like that's what's happening here, though, as to say the least, the GM, Kevin Colbert of the Steelers is, I love the headline, lukewarm. This is his quote. As we sit here today, Ben is a member of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He reiterated to us that he wants to continue to play, and we told him, quite frankly, we have to look at this current situation. With Ben's current cap number, some adjustments will have to be made. That's not a glowing endorsement for a quarterback that's already come out and said, oh, I'll take a pay cut. Like He's doing everything he can do to stay there, and the Steelers are basically saying, nah, man, we're good. Has he said pay cut in those words, or has he said, I don't really care about the money? Because they're very Uh, different. 
I, I'm, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know what's happening behind the scenes. I don't know if he's saying the words pay cut or if he's merely saying I'm not going to try to get more out of you or I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to be willing to be flexible. I think to me the interesting part about this is is the possibility that Ben Roethlisberger got out in front presuming that they would want him, telling everybody his plan, and now the GM is saying, uh, maybe we're not on the same page here. Right? I, mean, I don't know if I would go out publicly and tell everybody what you're willing to do in order to make this work because we might not care what you're willing to do. We might be ready to be done. I thought Marcus Spears absolutely nailed this today on NFL Live that they don't owe him anything even though he's done a lot for them other than to be honest about how they feel about his skill level right now. At some point, right, if you still think Ben has ball left, the conversation should revolve around how do we make this work for another year and how do we suffice until we can find somebody to replace you as our quarterback. The respect comes from telling the truth. It ain't about how how nice we are in public and all of these things. Let's get down and have a 100 conversation about what the plan is going forward. If it's move on, we move on. If it's I'm, I need to be here another year because we got to find something else, do it at that. But just honest and transparent, that's all they owe him. A lot of people would disagree, Fitz, right? A lot of well, people would say they owe more than that. And I think, unfortunately, um, they don't, especially because it's been on and off for the last couple of years of whether he would come back. This wouldn't be a shock if they said time to move on. Well, and I, I keep looking at it, reminding everybody, the NFL is not about what you've done for a franchise. It's about what they think you will do for a franchise. So Ben didn't look great for much of last season. And you're absolutely right. I looked it up. Ed Bouchette, uh, the great reporter that covers the Steelers, said uh, this was his tweet. Ben Roethlisberger just told me, quote, I don't care about my pay at, the, at all this year and is willing to restructure a contract. Uh, that's fine. Uh, you're absolutely right, though. The other side of it is I can say all day I don't care about pay. And then somebody comes in. It's like when you're at a restaurant and you say, give me whatever. I'll take your <laughs> finest. And then you see the actual price. And you're like, no, not that bottle of wine. Like I, I'm, right. well, I thought it was like $30 bottle of wine. Give me like, my finest. We give me my finest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. You can say big when you bundle your auto, home, motorcycle, RV, or boat. Visit Progressive.com. I'm going to take that uh, from you forever, Sarah. I'm just going to say, give me my finest price range <laughs> bottle of sparkling water, please, if it's free. All right, coming up, we'll bring in an expert to discuss the investigation on NFL concussions and specifically race. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app and Sirius XM channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, represented by Progressive Insurance. And we're going to head straight over to the Goodyear hotline to get into something that's uh, very, this is a very heady topic, uh, no pun intended, uh, obviously, as concussion protocol has been something that has been talked a lot about in the NFL, and we all know about the concussion settlement that was reached. However, as we've gotten farther away from that settlement, there are more questions about it. Now, there is the accusation in a lawsuit against the NFL accusing the league of explicitly and deliberately discriminating against black players filing dementia-related claims. So to get a little help on understanding where we are, how we got here, we'll head to the Goodyear Hotline where we're joined by our buddy Ryan Smith, legal analyst for ESPN ABC News. Ryan, as always, we appreciate your time. So give me a little bit of a sort of the easiest way to explain how we got to this spot where a lawsuit is filed for racial issues around concussions. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. So, you know, it, it starts like this. Two NFL players who had filed this lawsuit, former NFL players, 
believe that they suffered head injuries or, or uh, sort of uh, head trauma as a result of injuries from playing the game. So under that, they can apply for a claim to try to get compensation from the settlement. They both went to doctors, and without getting too much into each of their cases, eventually their claims were denied because as they peeled back the layers of the reasoning behind it, there is a formula that neuropsychologists evaluating these players have to use. And that formula accounts for age and education, but also race. And the effect of it is the formula assumes that before players even get on the field, black players have a lower level of cognitive functioning than white players. And so it makes it harder for them to prove dementia and all kinds of other head injuries after they've played. So in a sense, it's a formula that's being used that these players are claiming discriminates on the basis of race and is being used to deny their claims. Yeah, Ryan, what's interesting is some of the ways that they sort of separate and create a baseline makes sense. It's it's background, it's education level, it's maybe things yeah. that would help them be able to figure out what was the starting point for this person and, and where have they gone. But to use race is to imply, not at all subtly, that all black players start from a lower level of intelligence and cognizance. How would they even begin to explain, other than that, why race would be a factor used in the deciding? Okay, so it's a great question. And and the perspective of the NFL on this is this. First, that this was negotiated as part of the settlement. This was part of the deal between the Players' Council and the NFL. But the other thing they've said is, This formula is not meant to discriminate. In fact, it's meant to go against discrimination. And they're referring to why it was originally developed. The idea was to get a better understanding of the patient. It's kind of like a diagnostic tool. So when somebody comes in to see you, you want to get to know more about them. You want to get to know not only just what they're telling you about what they're suffering from, but also like why they're suffering from, where they come from, what their background is like. That's supposed to be the way it's used. The NFL is saying, hey, this is a recommended thing. It's not required. Neuropsychologists can use it in doing their evaluations. But what the neuropsychologists have been saying, based on some emails we recovered between doctors who were involved in this process, was that they felt it was required. And that's where you get to the point of what you just mentioned, Sarah. The idea is it's supposed to be used to help doctors understand patients better. But somehow, according to these players in their lawsuit, it has morphed into this thing of we are assuming that black players function at a lower level than white players before they play, and we're making it harder for them to prove their claims. So what should have been a diagnostic tool is being used like a hammer. Well, and a quick follow on that, part of the difficulty in them being able to support their claims that it's not required is that one of the two players in this investigation and and with this with this suit uh was was approved for the settlement then appealed and the nfl then denied it based on this so if it's not required then why would the nfl say you didn't apply race in deciding this now let's apply race and remove the the settlement That's a $100 million question right there, and that's exactly what the players are bringing up in this lawsuit. If it's not required, why appeal? Why appeal on those grounds? And the player you're talking about is a player named Keevan Henry. Actually, both players in some ways were subject to both of these. But Najee Davenport, who was one of the players that brought this claim, he went to see a neuropsychologist who told us, we met with the doctor, and he told us, hey, look, I knew that there were these norms that I have to apply involving race, and I didn't apply them. They didn't make any sense to me. And – he says he got a call saying, why didn't you apply them? And he said, because I think it's discriminatory. You can't do this. 
And instead, that, that claim of Najee Davenport's that was, event, that was approved was appealed by the NFL, and then it was rejected. So yeah. that's essentially what this lawsuit is all about. And when you talk about what you were just saying, Sarah, we have emails from these doctors, and they're saying things like they thought it was required. When they didn't apply it, they would get multiple inquiries from the NFL. And one of them was saying that if it wasn't required, then maybe we've been doing it wrong. Now, just think of the implications of that. Think right. of the hundreds or, or scores of players out there who might have had this applied and the NFL is now saying that it's not required, but doctors thought it was required. What might have happened to those claims? We're talking to Ryan Smith, legal analyst for ESPN and ABC News on Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. You mentioned earlier that the NFL's point in this is that this was agreed upon in the settlement. Why would they ever have agreed to this? You know, Jason, it's one of those things where I, this has been plaguing the settlement since it was agreed to. Both sides came to terms, and since then we have seen item after item that players have argued, former players have argued, does not favor them, that is meant to be held against them, that is being used to deny claims. And the NFL will tell you that they've had about 3,000 claims, 1,200 approved by former players and their families. They've paid out over $800 bucks, So they've paid out a lot. But the devil is in the details, and it always has been in this settlement. And when you have something like this, what we don't know is whether this was something specifically agreed to or whether this was something that evolved over time. Now, we did reach out to the class council. So this is like a class action lawsuit that eventually led to the settlement. We reached out to class council and class council, the people who represented the players in this said, look, we want a clarification if this is actually what's happening. If players are getting discriminated against, we want a clarification. Roger Goodell addressed this before the Super Bowl. And he said, hey, we'll we'll consider and I'm paraphrasing here. He said he's willing to look at and consider changes. But right now you've got something in place that these players are arguing blatantly discriminates. And Sarah, to your point, assumes even at the front end before they even started playing football that the cognition of a black player is right. lower than a white player. That in and of itself is bad optics and something that I think is going to have to be addressed in some way. Ryan Smith is with us, and you should absolutely listen to his long-form conversation, uh, 30 minutes or so, with Pablo Torre on ESPN Daily, where they really get into the nitty-gritty of this and read the story on .com. Uh, he's a legal analyst for ESPN and ABC News. There's a lot more to this than we'll be able to get to, so, so get the goods from that conversation, which was really smart. I wonder, Ryan, if it, if, if, to, to Fitz's point, the reason for allowing this quote-unquote race norming is to correctly lower levels of expectation when necessary, based on what we tend to find is racial bias in testing, in the wonderlick, in, you know, any number of other things that we have just in more recent years really begun to understand the, the detriment to uh, basing everything around the pres- presumption that everybody's that, that white is the norm or is is the average. But in this case, yeah. is there any defense of race norming um in the opposite direction, where there's there's a presumption about levels of education or experiences in minority communities that doesn't apply to every black person either. Yeah, I, I want to say that the the idea of using race norming has been disputed in many different fields that people feel like it's not something that should be used at all. But if I was to offer a defense of it, I would say if I am a doctor who knows nothing about the patient before me, understanding their age, their education, and even their race and factoring that into their background helps me understand more about them so I can properly assess them 
and give them, for example, in the NFL situation of the settlement, make the right recommendations to the claims administrator who ultimately decides on the claims. The problem is it cannot be used in the way it's set up, in the way that nobody's, everybody keeps saying they don't want to discriminate right. against anybody. It cannot be used as a way to differentiate between black and white people. And it, it, it's, it's like somebody walks into my office and I just want to understand them better. That's one thing. But it's another thing to say, well, I want to understand them better, so I'm going to put them in a black class, and I'm going to assume they're different from the white class. That's where this principle has run into problems. So the defense of it is, if I'm using it purely as a way to understand my patient better, not to lower his level of cognition, not to make it harder for, us to, for him to prove that he's entitled to a settlement, but instead to just try to understand him better, then you can make the argument that it works. But that's, these players are saying that's not what's happening here. And they're also wondering, as you said earlier, if it's recommended, if it's just a way, if it's just a tool that doctors can use, why appeal when it's not used? Why use that as a ground? Mm. And that's a fair argument. You guys can follow him on Twitter at Ryan Smith TV. As Sarah said, check out the article on ESPN.com. Go check out yesterday's episode of The Daily uh, with Pablo Torre. That's a great interview there. Ryan, as always, you do incredible work. We appreciate your education and insight on this, my friend. Hey, guys, anytime. Great to talk to you, as always. Ryan, we're brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. All right, coming up, the debut of something that will put our work marriage to the test. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Back to Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Happy Pitchers and Catchers Report Day. Happy Michael Jordan's birthday. Happy Serena and Naomi later tonight. It is a good day here on Spain and Fitz, and it's always a good day hanging out with my work husband. Eh, actually, it isn't always. Here's the thing about Spain and Fitz. Over the last couple years of our on and off work marriage, we've found some things we very much agree on. Saturday Night Live, Rescue Dogs, and some things that we don't. The greatness of Chris Farley, maple syrup. Yeah. It, and we're left... In those moments, wondering about the strength of our union. And today, we've stumbled upon one of those topics. One of those topics that has us asking ourselves, are we in this work marriage for better or for worse? Please don't use that tone with me. I, I didn't use any tone with you. Better or worse on Spain and Fitz. This is perfect. This is just what you want, isn't it? What is what you I want? You want me to get crazy so you can remind me of how crazy I got that's right. We're setting ourselves up for a fight here. I don't know if it's a great idea, but uh, we're going to do it anyway. Here's what I'd happened. I'd like to remind you, Sarah, as a married man, I'm used to losing fights. Go ahead. That's right. I'd like to remind you, happy wife, happy life. Mm-hmm. And they're not just talking about real marriage. They're talking about work wives, too. Mm-hmm. Also, it, it doesn't rhyme husband and life. So I think that's probably where that saying comes from. <laughs> happy husband, nothing, happy. Nothing rhymes with husband. Yeah. Happy Rubbin, happy husband. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> and that's go. only in real marriage, not in the... Anyway, things got awkward already. That's, that's, this is what happens. So this is what we were doing. We were talking about TV, and Fitz made one of those statements that he makes that has your jaw dropped to the ground and has you questioning everything you ever thought about him as a reasonable human being. Why don't you go ahead and repeat it? 
Okay, see, I was thinking about the premiere of the new rock show, and it had me thinking about old-school sitcoms and sort of the golden era of, you know, Thursday night, must-see TV and all that stuff. And as we were looking at the the path of shows, uh, 30 Rock came up, and I know you're a big 30 Rock fan, so I just thought mm-hmm. I'd remind you that Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip was a better show than 30 wow. Rock, and 30 Rock killed Studio 60 uh, unnecessarily. It might be Aaron Sorkin's best work wow. and absolutely should have lived on longer. I'm just this saying, is a terrible I, I blame take. 30 Rock for the death of Studio 60. It's still going. Uh, okay. Interesting, yeah. One of the only one of only four shows created by Sorkin that never aired for more than one season. Like he's usually got hits on his hand. There were some strong players in that. Matthew Perry, Amanda Peet, Bradley Whitford, DL Hughley, like some good Steven Weber from uh Wings, Sarah Paulson, Nate Cordray. I mean, this is this is a lineup. And I actually enjoyed Studio Sixty on the Sunset Strip, Not which enough. was supposed to be similar to Saturday Night Live, but a behind the scenes look at it. I thought it was interesting. I was into it. I wanted more. But unfortunately, the timing was bad. It happened around the same time as 30 Rock. And 30 Rock is perhaps the greatest comedy of all time. I am in the camp that when I was asked recently to rank them, I was really struggling on Parks and Rec and The Office and 30 Rock. They are among my favorites. It is to me... A fantastic, perfect show that when I start it from the beginning and watch again, remains perfect and fantastic. It's barely a top 10 comedy from NBC. Wow. You did not watch it. There's no chance. There's no chance you watched 30 Rock and you have this opinion. I watched it. It's just, you know, it's just okay. Okay. Let's see if all of your takes are this bad. You mentioned must see TV. I tried to watch Keenan last night because we're both big fans of SNL. I love Keenan Thompson. He came on my podcast. That's what she said with Sarah Spain, shameless plug. And I was rooting for him. I'm going to give it more time. But I think there is a disconnect for me now with standard basic cable sitcoms. I don't watch any of them anymore. My favorite shows, my favorite comedies even, are like the good place that used to be on a basic cable and then went to Netflix and I think got better. That's a fair point. I Look, I, I don't love a lot of comedies, but I think there's been this resurrection at this point. Like Mr. Mayor is a Tina Fey show that's on NBC. I think it's really, it's got that same charm. It's it's a throwback. Oh, Tina Fey, what shows has she done before? Well, she, not, uh, not all, I think it's just like Aaron oh, Sorkin, they're not all hits. They're not all hits. I like 30 Rock. 30 <laughs> Rock just doesn't stand up compared to the rest of the historic lineup of NBC comedies. That's all. I mean, 30 Rock's good. It's just... You know, it, it's it's just not spectacular. You know, it's 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 good. Okay, it's good. so so let's look okay. at the must see TV lineup because as, as I mentioned, I was trying to figure out if like I'm going to give Keenan a little more time because I liked Single Parents with our guy Taron Killam, and I started watching it for him. It was slow at the beginning; first couple episodes were a little cheesy, and then they found their group. So I'm going to I'm going to give Keenan that time. You said you you DVR'd The Rock's new show to see if you might like it. You're into this, Mr. Mayor, so. We're we're trying to see if they can come back through with some good, you know. I liked Will and Grace in its return, for instance. They yeah, brought it too. back, but again, that's nostalgia, right? I like the format because the first time I watched it, you know, the first incarnation was was you know when that kind of format was normal. We've just kind of moved on from that. But let's go back to the heyday, right? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with my all time favorite must see TV lineup. This is a tough one, but I think I'm going to go in 2011-12. It went Community, which is one of my favorite shows of all time, into Man. 30 Rock, 
which is one of my favorite shows of all time, into The Office, which is one of my favorite shows of all time, into Parks and Rec. Okay, so that is a, I got to give you a lot of credit. Parks and Rec, The Office, those are two of my all-time favorites. And 30 Rock is very good. You know, I don't want to under, 30 Rock's very good. Community, I never really got into. So, oh, you know. I the best. That one's, that one's tough for me, you know. So I, I, that, but that's your all-time favorite of all of them, right? Uh, community? I can't pick, no, but it's No, no, I mean there. that lineup. That oh, particular lineup I think lineup that that was, lineup was would be for me. And I can't say in the moment it necessarily rec- I recognize the magic in front of me, but I would say that looking back, those shows stand out to me as my favorites of all time, and they're all in the mix there. And by the way, you cut off before the long drama at the end because there really wasn't. I never, I never got into that. that. Yeah, back in the day when ER was part of it, I absolutely stuck around for that, but the not for the other ones. So for that that reason, that that drama is a little like I'm going to go way old, like because I'm old, right? Uh, And I'm going to say first and foremost that this is based on you know my memory of these shows and how much I love them. So the first name in it is a difficult one, and this is something I always deal with when I think about the art I consumed or the creativity I consumed. The Cosby Show. I'm going back to eighty four, eighty five. I'm going back to eighty four, eighty five. How old are you? Gross. (laughs) Started with the Cosby Show. Went to Family Ties. Then it went to Cheers. Then it went to Night Court, and then it went to Hill Street Blues. Like as a kid, I would stay up late to watch Hill Street Blues. So I'm telling you, like Family Ties. Cheers, Night Court, and for when I was a kid, the Cosby Show, not knowing what we now know, uh, was obviously what it was to me. So, But of all of those, the funny thing is, it's Night Court that I think never gets enough love and respect. Oh, I love Night, Night Court. Court. was amazing. So that's my all-timer. It's 84, 85. My that is an God, excellent choice as well. You are very old. Um, <laughs> I mean, but I remember, I mean, there was a stretch there when I did the Mad About You Wings Seinfeld Frazier. That was, that was a, a solid, close second for that me. Was yeah, that was a solid one. Second. Back in the day, throw a different world into there. I loved a different world. Mm-hmm. Cosby Show, a different world. world. Cheers, Night Court. That was also, but Family Ties, man. Man, must-see TV really was must-see TV. How about TGIF? Family, uh, you know, family Matters, Step by Step. Can I interest you in that? No. Uh, no? It's fine. Okay. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. I'm putting all this on Twitter just to prove that I'm right about all of this. Uh, when it comes to the better, it's Spain. When it comes to the worse, it's Fitz. That's the way it is. Coming That's up, fair. Serena's race to history could face a speed bump tonight. We'll get some details on the matchup coming up. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. I've been nervous all day, and I'm not even playing, and... My teams aren't even doing it. It's just this Serena-Naomi matchup because I know who I want to root for. It's the queen who's getting ready to make history, but I also love her opponent. It's a I hope both teams have fun kind of situation. It's Spain and Fitz. <laughs> Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. But I do want one more team to have fun than the other. It's complicated. Uh, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. Joining us to help me sort out these feelings on the Goodyear hotline, it's Yahoo Sports columnist Dan Wetzel, who wrote about tonight's Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka meeting in the Australian Open. Thanks for the time, Dan. Hey, thanks for you know, uh, having me on. I always appreciate it. Are you uh, are you as torn as I am here? Where I love seeing this upstart who's ten and zero from the quarterfinals on keep that pristine record, but also I know Serena's running out of time, and this might be one of her last shots at twenty four. Yeah, I don't necessarily have a rooting interest uh, in it, but I, you know, obviously you just laid it out. I mean, I think for tennis history's sake, 
you know, you'd have to pull for Serena, uh, 39. This is the fifth time, or the she's made four finals, Grand Slam finals, in, in 10 appearances since motherhood, and this would be her shot at her fifth. There's only so many opportunities, this is what we would say, that she's going to get to get that 24th Grand Slam. Of course, when Tom Brady was 39, we thought that would be his last Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> we thought when Serena was 37, that would be her last Grand Slam final. So hard to put a time on it, but obviously history's at stake there. Uh, but uh, Naomi Osaka is the the big star in tennis now. She has three Grand Slams and is building her own portfolio. So uh, you're torn. It should be a great match. I think what you hope for is, is three sets and, and everything that you want out of these two. Um, and just an, an amazing uh, scene tonight. Dan, as Sarah has pointed out on the show tonight, Osaka's 10-0 and in her career in the quarterfinals or later at majors, and she's 19-0 and since the tour restarted last summer. Why? What does she do so effectively this late in tournaments? Well, that's a good question that I, I don't know that I have a, a perfect answer for, but obviously she elevates the level of her play when she when she's in it. When she's on her game, she's almost unbeatable. And so when you get to those late, uh, you know, if she's upset early uh, in in one of these, then obviously that's in part because she's she's not on it. But when she is, she's just, uh, you know, she she just plays such a beautiful game. She has incredible poise. Uh, you know, is really stepping into the prime of her career at this point is, is confident uh, and all of that. So I certainly expect that whoever wins tonight would win the, would win the Australian open. And, um, I, you know, it's, I, I don't know what the betting odds are, but I'm, I'm sure they favor Naomi Osaka uh, in this, even with Serena across the net. It's Serena Naomi tonight, 10 Eastern on ESPN two. The first time two NWSL owners are meeting in an Australian Open. Yeah. Uh, would love to see that. Dan Wetzel, Yahoo Sports columnist with us. I love the open to your story on, on Yahoo.com because it reminds me of so many of the conversations around Tiger Woods, right? If you last long enough, you begin to see the fruits of your labor come to try to defeat you. And there is this feeling that especially minority players are coming up in the shadow of Serena and 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 at it even maybe younger and expecting more of themselves younger because they have someone to look to that's doing it. Uh, that's such an interesting thing to think about uh, for those like Tiger and Serena who are playing uh, at the time that they're now facing those who watch them as kids. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's somewhat true in any sport. It's just normally we've had a generation go by where you don't have that um, – you know, an athlete would retire younger. So you, you take like Tom Brady rooting on Joe Montana. Like Tom Brady was at the game as a San Francisco Giant fan. I think he was like eight years old when when Joe Montana threw the catch to, to uh, Dwight Clark. And there's like a picture of him with like a big foam one and, you know, finger with the one <laughs> held up. And, and then, but he didn't get to play against Joe Montana. And then as these athletes have gotten so much older, like like Brady and then Serena. So you almost just live, you, you, your career goes so long that you face the, that eight-year-old that you inspired. And it becomes this it's intriguing thing. Now, the thing about the, the Osaka-Williams uh, thing, which is amazing, is, uh, you know, the, the, Naomi and her, her, her family moved to New York when she was three, and her father watched uh, – 
Venus and Serena in the 99 French Open. Now, uh, Serena would go on to win the U.S. Open later that summer as the first, her first major. She's 17. I think Venus was 18 or 19. And he heard the story of Richard Williams basically training his daughters on the public courts of Compton, California, to become these tennis stars. Basically built a tennis star, which alone had been what I always thought was the most improbable story ever. Like a dad just, he literally said, let's have two more daughters. I'm going to train them into champions. And then he did it. Well, Naomi's father did the same thing. He said, this is the blueprint. He started teaching his daughters, uh, Naomi and her older sister, uh, Mari, how to play tennis. Now, Mari became a professional, and I think, you know, at times maybe 300 from the world. So she wasn't Venus, but the younger sister becomes Naomi Osaka. So their family stories are linked. It's not just she was a kid dreaming of Serena Williams growing up. Um, It was her, literally her dad, following the path of Richard Williams, uh, the blueprint to create a tennis champion. It's a completely absurd story. And now here they are. Both of them works, and now they're playing against each other again in a Grand Slam semifinal. Just just absolutely crazy. We're talking to Dan Wetzel, Yahoo Sports columnist, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, and obviously we're breaking down everything you can see tonight, 10 10 Eastern on ESPN2 when these two face off against each other. And with all that being said, Dan, like the first time you take somebody on that you've had as such an inspiration in your life, whether they're hands-on or hands-off, the first time it has this huge effect for so many people emotionally. When it's happened now three times, this will be the fourth. What impact does it have for somebody like Naomi Osaka going into the match? Yeah, I don't think it. I don't think she cares that Serena Williams to cross the way any more than that's who I'm playing. Like she talked the, the first time they played was uh, in 2018 at the Miami Open. And she said she's too scared to say hello to her before the match and all that. And her goal, she thought she was going to lose. And her goal was basically to push Serena to the point where Serena had to scream, come on, uh, her <laughs> kind of famous, you know, when she gets frustrated and she screams at herself. And because she's like, if you don't do that, did she even really have to try to beat you? And then actually uh, Osaka won that, that, that match. Um, I don't think it, it, it carries a whole lot of significance at this point. I think they've been there, done that. And, as you mentioned with Naomi Osaka's record late in majors and events of late, uh, this is this is all about, you know, I'm going to beat her. She's just in the way. I don't really care. Great. I'm glad I rooted for her when I was a kid. I'm right. glad in youth tennis. I, I like this with this person, but I want to win, and that, that's all that matters. I do love that you unearthed the mantra that Naomi used early in her career. WWSD, what would Serena do? And, of course, it would be beat your butt and not feel bad about it. And that's, of course, what she's hoping to do to her (laughs) idol tonight. Dan, thanks for the time. Uh, Looking forward to watching this match. Appreciate you setting it up for us. Me too. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Dan. Dan Wetzel, Yahoo Sports columnist. You can read his story right now on tonight's Serena-Naomi matchup, 10 Eastern on ESPN2. If you didn't get my reference earlier, Fitz, uh, Naomi Osaka recently announced as one of the owners of the NC Courage team in the National Women's Soccer League, and Serena and her daughter, um, and Alexis Ohani and her husband, all part of the ownership for that new Angel City team that will be debuting next year. So uh, lots of excitement around that. And I love that they've been rocking their NWSL hats to rep their teams throughout this tournament. Going to be a fun one tonight, 10 Eastern on ESPN2. Coming up, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about a big picture that we've sort of been keeping an eye on throughout the pandemic and is coming to another head soon with the NFL draft. It's next, Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast people on Twitter asking if Fitz is 58 years old, if that tells you how his television takes are going down. 
in the streets tonight. We'll get back to better or worse and who was well, better shaming. That's what we're doing. We're and who was shaming them. Worser <laughs> coming kids. up. It's Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Sometimes we do fun pre-show and after-show parties that you can get digital only by subscribing. And, of course, any of the good show stuff that you might have missed. Why would you, though? Honestly, what else do you have to do with your life right now? People talking about giving up stuff for Lent. I've given up enough in the last year, okay? There's almost <laughs> nothing available to me. I'm not giving up any of the things that I currently require in order to keep trudging forward towards hopefully some inevitable return to normal. Well, things got dark. Okay, let's talk about COVID, though, Fitz, because it's been really fascinating for me in particular. You were doing a different kind of radio show, I think, for a stretch there when Spain and Company was on um, before we reunited. But you know, at the time, the beginning of the pandemic started, and for the next six or seven months, it was three hours every night of what happens next and trying to project ahead. And what are the decision makers thinking? And I, I said constantly, I'm so glad that I'm not someone having to be making these decisions based on whatever facts we have and the ever-increasing knowledge about COVID in the moment, COVID long-term, et cetera. And we're looking now at, at the second time around. These leaders who last March were thrust into very primitive decisions based on a a very small amount of knowledge who are now coming back around this year and and having to ask themselves some of the same questions. Do we need a bubble or not? Can we go on with a regular length season? How much of a risk are we putting our players at? And when it comes to something like the NFL, for instance, the decision-making is is leading up to a draft that they are going to have the least amount of information going into because of how strange the college football season is. In the NBA, you've got a trade deadline a month away and teams that might be wondering, what does our second half season look like? We don't even have a schedule yet. That's the hardest part for me to wrap my head. Like, what do you do? If you're you're running, uh, whether it's an NBA franchise and you're coming into trade deadline or you're coming into the draft. Now, I said last year I thought that teams might be more willing to trade draft picks than ever because of the uncertainty. But this year is even tougher because how do you evaluate players that haven't played any meaningful football in a year? And some of the top prospects, we have no footage on from last season. We have no idea what they were doing, how it improved or didn't improve their game, what it means for them on the field. Like We can't even begin to know those answers. So if I ran a franchise today, I'm looking around saying, how the heck am I supposed to make any real meaningful long-term decisions when I don't even know what we're looking at, what we might be scouting, how to approach a trade deadline. Like there are too many variables right now. I'm risk averse anyway, but this year, particularly I'm, I'm fully puckered up if I run a team. Well, you seem to be puckered up most of the time. Just, just relax, friend. That is fair. Uh, no, but this, what's funny is I'm, I'm thinking about this last year. At this time, as we were getting ready for the draft, the conversations that we were having were, for once, they're going to do the right thing and just watch the tape. Who cares who runs faster in their underwear? Just watch the tape. Don't be making decisions about players in football games after you've watched plenty of them in football games because you changed your mind after they jumped in their underwear, right? And now we're going to the reverse, where I feel like there's going to be a lot of decisions made based on pro days and combines, whatever form that might take, because they don't have the tape. And that's an even bigger risk, and especially at some of the positions where people like Bill Barnwell do the deep dive and look at the records and say, man, this is a tough position to translate from the college game to the pros. It's going to be even tougher this year. 
Yeah, and, and without the body work, and all look at edge rushers. Like there's a kid, Gregory Rousseau, that had a great year in his, not this last year, the year before. He had a great year, and everybody thought he was going to come in last year and just be lights out and really make his stock go up as an edge rusher. Well, he didn't play. He opted out, which is absolutely, as you and I have said a million times, I'm not going to fault a kid for opting out. But now if I run a team, well, I haven't seen any football in so long. Do I go back to the tape from before? Do I just... Do I presume that he's in the same shape, that, that everything's good? And, and even if he is in the same shape, that a year off of football had no impact? I mean, how often do we see players when they're coming back from injury and we acquiesce that at some point it's going to take some time? And so uh, Rousseau is somebody that on one of our more me- recent mock drafts, he's going 11. But I've seen him 11 to the Giants. I've seen him as low as 23. So, you know, this tells you how imperfect the science is going to be. And you're right. There is no normal combine for anyone that – Hasn't seen that. The indie Combine is gone this year. It's a virtual Combine with a lot of constraints. So, you know, I, I'm not even sure if you're running a team, how you best evaluate when you're being forced to evaluate in ways that you've never done it before. Sarah Spain and Jason Fitz, Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You said that you would be very risk-averse in this time because there are too many question marks. If you go all in, you might still end up looking at a season that is affected by uncontrollable factors. That could be a star player who's unavailable because of COVID. That could be random changes to a schedule because of COVID. There's one way to look at it, right? The other way is you could happen upon some magic because all bets are off. And maybe that's how we felt watching the NBA playoffs last year. I'm not asterisking the Miami Heat, but I think a lot of people would question, would things have gone the same way? down the stretch in the East, if everything was normal, if there was home court advantage, if the sight lines in the bubble weren't a part of it, if everyone was healthy, if every team was playing, et cetera, no opt-outs. So do you maybe go all in now? Because if you're not that team that thinks that they're going to contend, one little push might put you over the top against a team that could lose a star. And now you've got a, a line to a championship that you might not otherwise potentially have a shot at. Well, and I can't speak out of both sides of my mouth when I constantly say that, yeah, I got to win now if you think you have the opportunity because you never know what the future holds. So maybe you're right. Are the Heat sort of a blueprint that turns around and says, okay, guys, in a year where we don't even know what the schedule is for the second half of the NBA season, do we get more aggressive? Because as everything you know falls apart or comes together, maybe we have the opportunity to, to find our path through that chaos and and put ourselves in a situation that otherwise we might not be. I mean, that's that's an interesting approach to it. And, you know, maybe it makes some people, this is like the stock market, right? Like there are certain people that are more risk averse and there are certain people that just aren't going to be all in. But how often do we hear about somebody that goes in and buys the stock when it seems like it's the worst time to do it? And as a result, they have a lot more money than we do in 10 years, you know? So <laughs> it, it, maybe that that is the equation here it's that makes stonks, some sense. stonks, okay? If you're going to talk like that, you got to say stonks. <laughs> That's the terminology if you're going to get in on GameStop and and Blockbuster. Um, yeah, I mean, I do not envy the people making these decisions, I will say yet again. Um, and, and I also think we're going to have to take a good hard look at the second half of the NBA season, beginning with the much maligned All-Star game that they're throwing, and consider whether they've lost all the goodwill they earned with the bubble. This was outside of the world of sports, earning so much credit. There were people in the political world and in world leadership pointing to the NBA and saying, if you want to learn how to do this right, watch what they're doing. And what we've seen this time around without the bubble has not been that. And there's a lot of question marks for 
going forward, if we don't get the return to normalcy that we all wish we could be at by now, um, are we are we letting fatigue about the virus lead our decision making and not taking it as seriously as we should? And we did back then. Fatigue is maybe the most important thing, Sarah, that you just said, I think, to everybody to hear, because so often we just start to say, "Okay, well, we can't do this forever. So we're going to do this now or we're going to accept that now. And that's sort of what the NBA seems to be doing in some ways. And it's what all sports are going to be looking to do come to the fall because they want to make that money. But ultimately, at what cost? Spain and Fitz coming up. We'll get into the quarterback chaos that's a part of this crazy NFL offseason. It's next on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. We're going to get to some straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. This is the offseason. This is the time. This is where the NFL is going to rule all conversation because everybody is consumed with what's going to happen with quarterbacks, and we're going to break that down in the way that only we can. We always thought that this would be an unprecedented movement of quarterbacks. Magic made by Carson Wentz. All this is circling around us. Deshaun Watson on the run. The most important position to have this kind of turnover. NFL offseason 2021. Quarterback chaos on Spain and Fitz. So we're going to take different quarterback situations and break them down with people that can help us, that know what's going on in those areas. And we're going to start with the rumor mill that we've got today. Molly Cotton joins us from 730 The Game ESPN in Charlotte. Molly, thanks so much for the time. A lot of conversation happening today about the fact that the Panthers will be all in no matter what it takes to to somehow acquire Deshaun Watson. So what are the realistic chances in your mind that the organization can put something together that brings him to to the Panthers? I do think it's realistic. It's going to be tough, guys, when you've got a team like the Miami Dolphins who have a heck of a lot of assets, or even the Jets who have a younger, maybe more promising, if you will, quarterback who maybe all it takes is a change of scenery and Sam Darnold can be the next best thing for the Houston Texans. But for Carolina, look at Carolina as an organization and organizationally comparing them to the decisions that the New York Jets have made uh, in the past, even when it comes to ownership, Uh, I feel better about that with David Tepper as the owner and especially a guy like David Tepper who does feel like he is willing. He came in here to Carolina seeming like he was willing to go all in to win. And we know that Deshaun Watson is the quarterback that's going to give you that best chance. So honestly, because of ownership, that's why I feel like it's somewhat realistic. At the end of the day, is it an uphill battle because you're competing against organizations that have a lot more to offer? Yes. But David Tepper, who said Rome wasn't built in a day, well, apparently it was built in 16 games. And he wants uh, to now win and be a winning organization. And he knows that Deshaun Watson is going to give this team the best chance to do so molly cotton with us please follow her at molly espn 730 because she posted a picture of her dogs in telling everyone that she was going to be on the show tonight and oh my god the squishy faces i'm having trouble focusing on the content at hand you mentioned david tepper and i remember i happened to be doing the levitard show around the time that he was announced as the new owner and i happened upon a series of facts about him that i have now ingrained into my brain and one of those was that he used to have a pair of brass testicles on his desk in his office that were cartoonishly large and said in an inscription on the plaque below them, the most valuable set of all time. Uh, this is a guy who uh, is sometimes 
a, a caricature of a wealthy businessman allegedly bought a house uh, out from under somebody who took a promotion that he'd hoped for just so that he could tear it down and build a different one. Uh, so anyway, this is the guy that you're setting us up to believe might make this move purely because of the buzz that it would bring him, the 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 credit that he would get. Uh, do you think that he would do it to the point of over giving away assets and limiting the team's ability to contend even if they did have Deshaun Watson? Yes, 1,000%. And Sarah, I just raised the roof when you brought up his brass testicles because I have talked about those brass testicles way too many times. And Charlotte Ratio, except you put it much nicer um, than I've talked about. While I've criticized David Tepper as an owner, I think he's probably got his hand in the cookie jar uh, more often than maybe he would like fans to think at times. I do think he's the guy in a situation like this to go all in, to pull out those brass testicles and show us just how large they truly are, especially as a newer recent owner in the NFL. And you're a mediocre, forgettable franchise this year. And then this morning and all today, it's all about the Carolina Panthers. Like, I feel like this is even motivating David Tepper that much more as he's sitting back on the desk looking at those testicles thinking, yeah, this is going to happen. Like, look at Carolina and the national attention that we've gotten just at the thought that this organization could land Deshaun Watson. So I think he's willing to give up and mortgage the future to get a guy like Deshaun. I also think that he's so willing to get a guy like Deshaun or make a move to be a winning organization right now that there could be potential for a mistake down the road or even in the short-term future from this franchise. I can't change the subject quickly enough based on the number of times. <laughs> say it, Vince. Say it once, Vince. Say it once. No, I'm not going to do it. All right, we're talking to Molly Cotton, uh, 7.30 the game, ESPN Charlotte. Uh, but, Molly, you just mentioned a mistake now for the future. Uh, Matt Rule was given a long-term deal to come in and take over the franchise. So is there any level, I know it's only one year in, but is there any immediate pressure on Matt to get anything done? I mean, how, how, how are they balancing those expectations for him? Well, I certainly think there is now, right? Like going, it was better than expected in certain areas this past season, especially on the defensive side. But I think at times the coaching staff and the coaching decisions, it was pretty underwhelming. The city of Charlotte was and probably still is throwing a parade for Joe Brady. I mean, I thought he was going to change the NFL stepping into Carolina. So the coaching staff really couldn't do anything wrong coming into this season. And then I think I sit back and I criticize the coaching staff more so than I thought I would, or even fan from the fans' standpoint, uh, fans criticizing the decisions late in games, the game management, things like that. Maybe it's a first-year type head coach, but for David Tepper, again, a guy who wants to win despite what he said about in a process and tearing things down, he's also talked about, and this was right before, right around the time that he fired Ron Rivera, losing sleep when he loses, losing sleep over mediocrity. And that's what we saw last year for Carolina. We saw this Panthers team have opportunities down the stretch and they go 0-8 in in games that they could have tied or or even taken the lead. And a lot of that is on Teddy Bridgewater. But I think it being better than expected this past season, yeah, you're going to be a patient guy, but also Tepper is still kind of 
proven that he's going to pivot. He's going to adjust. And it may not be exactly, it may not pan out exactly the way he initially said it was going to. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to Molly Cotton of 730 The Game, ESPN Charlotte. We're all focused on the Deshaun Watson news because that's the biggest. But if they're out of the running, right, if the Texans are like, you don't have enough, you don't have the pieces we're looking for, what is their big plan going forward? How do they feel about the quarterback position? And is there anybody else on the radar? Yeah, and I think the fact that the Panthers were even in the running, according to reports, for a guy like Matthew Stafford and what they have and haven't said about Teddy Bridgewater, is very clear that Teddy is not the guy. So they miss out on Matthew Stafford. Now I feel like it's even more reason to go all in on a guy like Deshaun Watson. If you're looking at other quarterbacks potentially for Carolina, this is when I think they could fail because if you're going after a guy like Carson Wentz, yeah, thanks. I'll just stick with Teddy here for the next season and kind of do the same thing all over again. Now, Dak Prescott could be an interesting contender when it comes to the Panthers and trading for Dak Prescott if that, in the end, uh, is what the Dallas Cowboys choose in doing if they can continue to mess up that quarterback position uh, time and time again. But I look at maybe the next guy being Dak Prescott, and then for me, honestly, I think I'm sticking with Teddy Bridgewater. The Panthers... I don't think they want to. I think they may, again, make a mistake, maybe draft a quarterback, maybe reach for a quarterback in this year's NFL draft. I'm not super pumped about any of them outside, of course, Trevor Lawrence. So I'm sticking with Teddy Bridgewater, building this future, again, with the young defensive pieces that they have, and then looking ahead to next season. What can we do in the draft? Next season, what can we do in free agency after kind of essentially losing this offseason? You guys can follow her on Twitter at Molly ESPN 730. Plus, you can listen to her on 730 The Game ESPN Charlotte. Molly Cotton. Molly, thanks so much for giving us a straight talk. We appreciate you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the testicle give, talk. Give your dogs a boop for me. <laughs> One yeah, give, boop of will. <laughs> give the dogs all the snuggles in the world. Anything to stop <laughs> saying that word. Straight talk wireless. No contracts. No compromise. Coming up, big, big, hmm, see, that's what happens. What, what, you know, you say testicles enough times, eventually I forget how to read. Coming up, breaking baseball news, a young star just got paid. Plus, which day one feels the best? That's next, Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. You got guys getting paid, and boy, dinner is going to be on him for a long time. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, 14 years. For the next 14 years, dinner is on Fernando Tatis Jr. This is breaking news from Jeff Passan. The Padres and uh, and their famous shortstop are in agreement on a 14-year, $340 million contract extension. That's right. 14 years, $340 million in an extension to keep the young superstar with San Diego for a very long time. Sarah, it's an aggressive move, but I think the Padres just told you, hey, we'll spend whatever it takes to keep somebody that makes our franchise relevant, gets us conversation, and frankly makes us good for what we think is going to be a long run. Yo, Fernando, let me borrow a million dollars. Like, you know how you're supposed to say let me borrow a dollar? Uh, a million. <laughs> if, you get, if you're getting $340 million, surely you could spare a little bit for me. Um, yeah, I mean, this is... Not new anymore, but it felt new a handful of years ago where players that were on the way up and maybe hadn't quite proved that they could be superstars were given a massive long-term deal in the hopes that you'd get out ahead of it and they'd be worth more than what you offer them. 
in the years to come instead of the old plan, which was, you know, the Alfonso Soriano, the Pujols deals, where by the time they hit their peak, you're, you're paying them for past play. And you know that the end of their deal is going to be a bunch of years where they're not playing up to, to the amount that they're owed. Now, Tatis certainly has proved himself. He's not a gamble as far as can he be a star. But anybody for 14 years, $340 million, anybody is a gamble. This is just the way baseball is headed, though. Um, Their hope is that by the last half even of that deal, money has gone up so much that he's he's a steal. And, And apparently also that he won't try to renegotiate, right? That's a big part of this, Fitz, is if you sign for 14, how many years in are you now asking for more if you've earned it? Um, and to your point earlier, this is an especially risky move during a pandemic as you're trying to figure out what the future of your sport this season and beyond looks like, how much money is being made, are there fans in the audience, all the other stuff, uh, for to drop a deal like this. Well, and some important notes here. It's a 14-year deal, which means he'll be 35 when the deal is over. Like, it, there, this won't be his last contract. I mean, $340 million, unless, of course, he wants it to be, because, frankly, if somebody paid me $340 million, I'd never go back to work. He has a full no-trade clause. There's no money deferred in the deal and a signing bonus of $10 million. I do think there's some important notes here, though. I, I looked at SpotTrack.com and just took a look at the Padres and who they're paying right now. I mean, they're paying Manny Machado $32 million this year, Will Myers twenty two and a half. Uh, Hosmer gets 21, Hugh Darvish gets 22, Blake Snell gets 11.1. Everybody else is under 10. They got a lot of people they're not paying a ton of money to. So they're basically saying, hey, if we have the cash now, let's just get ahead of it. Let's pay him and let's be able to structure everything around Fernando Tatis Jr. moving forward for the next 10 plus years. I mean, that's what's what at least looks smart. If I'm just looking at the the numbers and the money side of it, Sarah, that part of it seems like it's a smart proposition. But you're right. 14 years, 340 million. I, I don't care who you are. It just feels scary to put that kind of term and money out. Well, and this brings me back to the conversation we were having yesterday with NBA Empowerment. If you look at that yearly, that's about $25 million a year, which is $10 million less per year than what Mike Trout is getting on his 12-year giganter deal. But it's also double what, for instance, Ronald Acuna Jr. is getting per year. He's at eight years, $100 million, so 12 and a half average per year. So he's double that average of another really talented young player. The question is... Is the surety and security of 14 years at that price enough for him not to demand out and or want to renegotiate if seven or eight years from now the marketplace has changed? How do you guarantee that? Because the way we've seen players now manage to argue that when the market changes, so too should their compensation, um, that benefits the player a lot more than the than the team that's going to be Hard up for that 14 years, regardless of how he plays. I mean, you're so right about all of us. But what I love about it is the aggressiveness of saying, I want to be relevant as a franchise. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, uh, ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive's home quote explorer, changing the way you buy home insurance. Now you can go online, get a custom quote, save both time and money. Learn more at Progressive.com. Fernando Tatis Jr. does not need to save time or money at this point. He's uh, He's got plenty of 14 years, $340 million with his contract extension. But I do, I'll go back to 
it's not that long ago that the Padres didn't even feel like they were part of the conversation. And now they've got Machado and Tatis, and they've spent the money to do that in a way that is going to make them relevant. It feels like for a long time. I, I don't know. We, we talk all the time in the NBA, too, about the same concept. What's the cost of relevance? And right now we know that it's roughly $14,340 million. <laughs> uh, Like That's all I can think about here that makes a lot of sense for them. Well, and you're starting to look over and understand why the Dodgers were willing to keep adding pieces in Trevor Bauer because they're looking over at the Padres and they're saying, I think, uh, as someone said a week or so ago, objects in the rearview mirror may be closer than they appear, right? You look at the Dodgers say, oh, you, you need to keep adding. You just won. But the Padres have one of the deepest lineups in the league, and they are ready to challenge for a number of years because of the very talented young duo in Machado and Fernando Tatis Jr., who they've now uh, sewed up for for quite some time. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, ag- Jason Fitz. Acknowledge, sorry, Sarah. Can we like? The, I'll give Stosh all the credit. Producer extraordinaire pointed out Machado signed a ten-year, three hundred million dollar deal in twenty nineteen. So now the Padres have put out roughly six hundred and forty million dollars <laughs> in contracts. Yet we spend like a third of the year talking about why baseball is broken. Like something's going okay if you can write six hundred and forty million dollars in checks. I think things are pretty good. Oh, okay. Well, Fitz, you know, from your uneducated perspective, I'm sure you couldn't possibly understand those owners talking about how they are just leaking money. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I mean it, it's, woof, hey, let brutal. me be broke enough to spend $640 million. Yeah. That's, that's just, my, that's my mean, New Year's resolution. There we go. All, Finally of, made all of the crying poor that we heard from owners during the <laughs> negotiations for last year's shortened season were 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 an ugly display. Um, I believe Tom Ricketts, the uh, Cubs chairman, said the scale of losses is biblical. Biblical. Mm. And meanwhile, mm, just... we're looking at uh, the amount of money over over on the Padres bank uh, being a- enough to buy an ark, I guess you could say. <laughs> uh, Fitz, by the way, we're running out of showtime, and I would hate to run out of time without being being able to pay off the questions that we asked our, our oh, fans. Yeah, yes, and not at mm-hmm. all because I'm almost certain everyone agrees with me. That's not it. I just want to make oh, sure okay, we okay, value yes. the opinions mm, yes. of our great listeners. And we asked yes, yes. a couple questions throughout the show today. We started by talking about how today pitchers and catchers reported. And that's sort of the day one of baseball. And we asked what sports day one-ish is the very best feeling when it hits. And I said specifically, not opening night, something before that. And yet many of you came with opening night or March Madness, which is not day one. It's actually the culmination of the season. But 62.4% said pitchers and catchers. 26% said the NFL Hall of Fame game. 11.6% said other. The only one I'll accept for the other that was about right was the first round of the Masters. Kind of unofficial start of spring and early in the golf season. It's still sort of like an opening day regular season, but I'll give it to you. And then also midnight madness, right? The, the, that some schools have that gets you ready mm, for yeah. the season. You know, Snoop Dogg comes and, and drops some inappropriate words on, on the adoring families that are there. Um, that I will give you. But I still think pitchers and catchers, it just tells you spring is coming. There's such a hopefulness to it uh, that doesn't really exist across other sports for basically preseason practice. Um I think the Hall of Fame game resonated more for me, Sarah, just because when I was a kid, I was in Vegas, right? So I didn't need spring. It was fine. Right. Hall of Fame game meant the beginning. I think you can understand why it might be important to me. Now I'm in Connecticut, and now I need pitchers (laughs) and catchers. Let's go. 
Uh, we also asked who's right in hashtag better or worse. Me, when I said 30 Rock is better. Or Fitz, who said Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which was canceled after one season, is better. 87.1% agreed with me. The other 12% uh, get a hold of your lives. We also asked the better all-time must-see TV lineup. I said Community into 30 Rock, into The Office, into Parks and Rec. Fitz said Cosby into Family Ties, into Cheers, into Nightcore, into Hill Street Blues. This one was closer, but I still won by 61% of the vote. For better or worse goes There's my no direction. Hope. You know what, guys? I thought I thought you guys were better than that. I thought you guys were better okay, than boomer. that. Okay, <laughs> Boomer. Freddie and Fitzsimmons coming next. I'm just going to try not to say testicles for the rest of the night. Wow! Thanks for listening to Spain and Fitz on ESPN <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.